The scripture reading for this Easter morning is taken from the Gospel of John, and we'll be reading the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John, John 20, the verses 1 to 29, and then we'll be focusing in particular on the verses 30 to 31. That will be our text for today. The Gospel of John, chapter 20. The day before, Jesus had been buried. He had been laid by, or uh, the, the, the Friday before. And now it's the Sunday, the first day of the week, that we come to our passage. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter, And to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter, therefore, went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also. And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, and that he had spoken these things to her. Then, the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And again, I'd like to focus on those final two verses for this morning. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who would have thought three months ago that we would be here today? Makes for a bit of a bittersweet Easter, doesn't it? Historically, as Christians gathered together on Easter Sunday, they would smile and they would greet each other, maybe greet each other with a handshake or greet each other with a kiss on the cheek in some cultures, and sing together, He is risen, with the response of the other person being, He is risen indeed. Now, for the first time in 1700 years, since the time of persecution under Emperor Diocletian, Christians across the world are no longer able to meet openly. Now the thought, shaking somebody's hand, or even greeting somebody from any closer than six feet away, seems beyond reach. Being able to watch from a distance online and know that our brothers and sisters and maybe friends and neighbors are also watching the very same sermon online this Easter morning is a bittersweet thing. It almost feels like hanging over this celebration of new life and resurrection is the specter of death. And the irony isn't lost on us. However, in such a time as this, the good news of the resurrection is an especially sweet thing to savor. And why is that? Because although the pews are empty, although the church is empty, 
so is the tomb. The truth of the gospel reaches its pinnacle in the resurrection of Christ. And even as declarations of death and woe loom up on every side from the media and from our friends and family and from so many other places, the truth of the gospel remains that Jesus Christ came to earth to suffer and to die for our sins. And on the third day, he was raised up again for our salvation. And now he lives and reigns in heaven and he gives new life. And it's around this, the resurrection that we celebrate here today, that the key hangs. While the the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is the key to our salvation, which is to say it is what makes us righteous before God, it's what satisfies the wrath of God against sin, it is the resurrection that validates our faith. The resurrection is what gives us peace in our hearts about the truth and the sure promise of what God has given to us in Christ. As the Apostle Paul, one of the central figures in the early church, wrote by the direction of God in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. But the opposite is also true. Christ has risen, and therefore our faith is not empty, and our preaching is not empty. This is the heart and soul of our faith. The person and work of Christ reaching its pinnacle in his death and in his resurrection. And it's this that gives our faith solidity, stability, One author wrote, Our faith does not validate the resurrection. It's not because we believe that the resurrection is true, but rather the resurrection validates our faith. Our faith does not validate the resurrection. The resurrection validates our faith. We'll look at our passage today with that reminder of the rock-solid promise of the resurrection in our hearts. And so I proclaim to you the word of God today. This good news of the resurrection is written for you. First of all, so that you may believe. And in the second place, so that you may have life. This is the key to those two verses that the good news of the resurrection is written for you. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Why is this necessary? Well, there's a saying, seeing is believing. But when you yourself can't see, what do you do? You look to those people that you consider to be reliable. Parents, especially you who have boys and girls in the grades four, five, six range, how often did you have it that your children came home or now maybe come offline after a class and told you, my teacher said this was true? Maybe caterpillars turn into butterflies. Did you know that? And for some of you parents, it can seem like your child hangs on to the teacher's every word. And it can almost be frustrating sometimes. 
Why can't they listen to me like that? But it shows us something, doesn't it? It shows us that in part due to the trust that you show the teachers by sending your children to them and your boys and girls pick up on that, that you see those teachers as reliable witnesses in the fields that they're teaching about. Then they respond to that. Again, even for you older young adults, if you really trust your dad, you're looking for life advice and he tells you something about the world, then you'll take what he says into serious consideration because you've come to know that your dad is trustworthy. He is a reliable witness about what you see in the world if you've really come to trust your dad. The disciple John the author of the gospel that we're looking at is showing us this today. Of course, we can't look at him with our own eyes anymore as Jesus has ascended into heaven right now. But John is writing to remind us that in verse 31, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so to to help us in that, To help us walk along that path, he's calling in these various reliable witnesses, eyewitnesses, those who saw it themselves and were willing to stake their lives on it. And it's interesting, especially in this chapter, the witnesses that he chooses, isn't it? Mary Magdalene, a woman who the Lord had rescued, a woman who had so brokenheartedly been weeping that she couldn't even see through her tears to clearly see that the person in front of her was Jesus Christ. A woman who is so brokenheartedly weeping that she couldn't even have imagined the return of her dear Savior, that even when he was standing in front of her, she said she assumed him to be the gardener because there's no possible way he could be anybody else and looking through those her blurry vision from the tears that are running down her face she says tell me where you have taken him and I'll take care of him or in the second place a disciple Thomas who was so broken by what he had seen and experienced who that that he refused to believe even in the face of the testimony of those whom had been the closest to him for the entire length of Christ's ministry. He refused to believe until he was shown it personally. And of course, the other disciples as well. The disciples who were so afraid that even up till the point that Jesus came and appeared personally before them, they had locked the door of their house in fear and were hiding together. This they had in common. And none of them were expecting it. All of them had no reason to come up with something. They had accepted his death. They were grieving and they were gathered together and they were trying to figure out how they were able to move on from this point in time. 
And yet after the coming of Jesus and seeing him face to face, all of them speaking together were so certain of what they had seen and experienced, of the truth of the many other interactions that they had with Christ, that they were willing to bear witness of this until their deaths. I saw him with my own eyes. I held him in my hands. I touched him. He took food from my hand and he ate it. He was there. He was real. He was resurrected. Even bearing witness to you and me today. Bearing witness, telling of these events through the written word. The very book that you hold in your hands. Now there's much that could be said that reinforces their reliability and beyond that, the reliability of not just them but the over 500 other witnesses who personally saw Christ after his death beyond the disciples themselves and You can read more about that in the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 6. Even beyond that, you could bring up the fact that James, the brother of Jesus, who was skeptical of Jesus for his entire life and who didn't believe until after Jesus met him and confirmed his faith in his resurrection, after which he was transformed in his faith. And he became one of the pillars of the church. Acts 15, verse 14 to 21, gives a description of him working as one of those pillars of the church. And Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, chapter 1, verse 19, also. Such a man wouldn't have had such a radical transformation without this. In addition to that, you could consider what one of the founding fathers of the United States, Benjamin Franklin, said. Three may keep a secret if two of them are dead. Over 500 people still living who could bear witness to it at the time of the writing of these events. They cannot keep a secret, especially if they're threatened that they must recant or face death. All of the immediate disciples of Jesus Christ, except for John himself, were martyred because they wouldn't say, No, I didn't see him. They were so certain. They said, I I saw him. I felt him. I touched him. How can you tell me to tell other people that I did not see him? Especially if it means eternal salvation for them. They held on to it until death. And even John himself, the author of this gospel, the author of the Revelation, at the very end, the last book of the Bible, Even he himself died in exile on a rock of an island called Patmos. Death held no fear for them because with their own eyes they had been persuaded that there was no reason to fear because they knew what lay beyond. They knew who lay beyond. These are all eyewitness testimonies. Their testimonies, which we are reminded of, so that, as John writes in our passage, you might believe. Who might believe? Well, here's a thing that we should take note of. John was writing this gospel 
to Jews who had converted to Christianity. Jews who, having been converted, were struggling with why the rest of the Jews across the world weren't following after them in a sweeping fashion, recognizing who Jesus was. They had friends, brothers, loved ones, all of whom remained behind, not accepting Christ as Savior and King. This was difficult for them. Now, John isn't writing to unbelievers here. He isn't writing evangelistically to persuade them that Jesus was the Messiah that the writings of the Old Testament pointed to. The idea wasn't to convert them. They believed. But he was writing to remind them of these truths in hard times. Yes, this is a powerful witness to the Christian faith for those who don't believe. But the Bible was written for the sake of the people of God. It was written for believers. And that includes you and me today. Written for believers going through hard times. Especially as we are going through hard times right now. How much more should we take comfort in this? Because the fact of this resurrection is the reason we believe. As that one author wrote, our faith does not validate the resurrection. The resurrection validates our faith. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You do not believe these things and therefore these things that are written are true. No, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Don't flip this around. Sometimes people can, without even realizing it, fall into the trap of mainstream society. It's true because I believe it's true or it's true for me. And that takes all of the guts out of it, all of the courage that we would have had in talking to others about this, all of the comfort that we would find in hard times because of this is all taken out of it. Any power for ourselves if we forget the importance of this truth. These events were written so that we might believe. The events of the resurrection validate our faith. Take courage in what it actually means, what John is actually saying here. This is written so that you can remember that it's not just a theological idea. Many saw him, many bore witness to him, and it's because of that that we can and we do believe. Does my faith feel empty and powerless? Maybe it's because I have taken this and flipped it around. Maybe it's because I do not believe the resurrection as anything more than just something that is true for me. These things were written. These things took place. They were witnessed to by people who saw, people who touched, people who held, so that you afterward might look, might see, and might believe.
As another commentator on this passage writes, the confession that the evangelist the confession that the evangelist would lead those who are uncommitted to make and the committed to maintain is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This is what all of those events pointed to. The end of the gospel, as with the beginning, leads into still deeper waters that restore the soul. It leads to a confession that brings peace, a reminder of what happened, what God has done for us, which actually gives us courage for the present and hope for the future. And that brings us to our second point, so that you may have life. One of the reasons that everything is such a shock today, everything that's going on with this virus and with everything closing down and all of that, is that as a society, we have forgotten what death and loss looks like. We go to extreme lengths to preserve life, which is a commendable thing in itself, by the way. But what happens, what comes along with that, is more problematic. As people are living more and more, long, long, living long lives, people dying at an age of 80, 90, or 100 after a golden retirement, this is something that young people are comfortable with. And then, for everybody else, after that older person passes away, life goes on. Maybe not for those who are left behind grieving the loss, but for the rest of society, it goes on. It's not considered okay in society to make your loss too public after this anymore. In fact, they've even shied away from calling it a funeral, moving it to describing it as a celebration of life because they do not want to be reminded of this, of loss, of death. Why remind people of this? That just makes it uncomfortable. And so gradually, as a society, we've forgotten what death and loss looks like. Add on to that that we've had many years of prosperity here in the West. The economy seemed only ever to be growing, and over the last 10 years, it seems like it wouldn't stop. People were able to get more. They had unprecedented amounts of wealth. And the standard of living today is even better than kings and emperors in the Middle Ages. You're living your best life now, and you're living it for a long time. And so in such a kind of a framework, it's no surprise that talking about hope for a future seems pretty meaningless to a lot of people. For a lot of people, it makes this statement that we find here, that you may have life in his name, mean very little. And then for many people in this world, and maybe even for ourselves, the success and the wealth that we experience can be like thorns that grow up in the parable of the sower, choking out the good grain. And it can cloud the value of the gospel in our eyes. I have life, and it's good. Why would I look for more now? However, current events have thrown much of this on its head. As we're celebrating this Easter Sunday, 
closed off from everyone else, we are reminded. It's shown us how tottering this tower of prosperity is, how fragile life really is. But having many of society's idols taken away, it leads you to ask this question, where does this leave you? Does it leave you fearing death? If so, why do you fear death? Provision for our families left behind, yes. That's different from death itself. What happens when we're gone? That can be a concern. That's different from death itself. Let's, however, hone in on death itself. Do you fear death? And how do you respond to those who fear death? Other people's fear of death. It's a little bit strange when the response of so many Christians today who have a fear of dying, the response of so many Christians today to those who have a fear of dying is encouragement that they probably won't die yet. But how are we to respond? How are we to respond as we reflect on this, that believing you may have life in his name? We look at that first part, believing. Psalm 90 verse 12 teaches us this. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Recognizing that this life on this earth is limited. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Wisdom, of course, returning us to the fear of the Lord. That believing we may have life in his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so as we number our days, we look beyond today. What's our first priority for our family and for our friends during this time? We direct their hearts first towards the fear of the Lord. And it's in that that we can face and find wisdom in such troubling times as we are taught to number our days. And what comes with this wisdom? Isaiah 33, verse 6. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and the strength of your salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. There's a strength and stability that comes with knowing the end of your days is in the hands of the Lord. And salvation in Christ is the source of that strength and stability. Believing you may have life in his name. And so in this, the value of the resurrection becomes that much clearer. Jesus now takes us beyond a theory or just a teaching of the church, more than just an idea. As one author named Leslie Newbigin wrote, commenting on Jesus' raising of Lazarus in John 11, resurrection is no longer just a mere doctrine, mere teaching of the church. It has a living face and a name. Jesus is himself the presence of the life, which is God's gift beyond death. 
To be bound to Jesus by faith is to share already now that life which is beyond death. What does that mean? It means that with Jesus being risen, we have life in him after death. He is the first fruits of a harvest that follows behind. Wisdom, the fear of the Lord, and knowledge, knowing the result of the fear of the Lord, that sure promise and the firm confidence that life comes from him. Believing you may have life in his name. This isn't also just a reference to a life that is coming. But it's a reference to a transformed life here on earth. A life that's shaped by the peace that transcends all understanding. The peace and knowledge of knowing that we and our families are held in the hands of Almighty God. It gives you freedom not to live in fear of death, but to live in the joy of life. Life by virtue of the Redeemer's gift. Life by virtue of the one who in his flesh is already enjoying that life that comes after death and who will bring us to him. So in a world where things are uncertain and where many are hiding away, whether out of love for their neighbor or desire to preserve life or out of a genuine fear of death, to look on the face of the risen Savior is to look at life beyond death. And we're freed to live this life in a radically different way. We are freed to live life with peace and share that peace. No longer is Easter Sunday bittersweet. The bitterness is taken away and only the sweetness remains. Yes, the church is empty, but so is the tomb. Amen.